today we have a real major league baseball player, former major leaguer on the podcast, Jeremy Guthrie. He's a pitcher, played on a bunch of different, well, a few different teams, but most notably the Kansas City Royals. He was a part of the two World Series teams, won the World Series in 2015, and he was awesome. Yeah, he doesn't act like a guy that's been on two World Series teams. So humble. He's super humble. Like it was, it was really cool that you know, his story is largely one about a whole bunch of failures, a couple poignant successes leading mm. to an overall great career. The, as you guys listen to this one, there's just so many things that are applicable to our job. So as he's telling the stories of like coming up through the minor leagues and all that stuff, like really pay attention to the adversity that he had to overcome to eventually get to the big leagues. It's pretty rad. Yeah. The mental, like being able to like, kind of just get through the mm. difficulty that is the minor so leagues. many peaks and valleys yeah and then in order to really experience the highs like he definitely earned it and i think i think you're right like when i think of like oh you're a major league pitcher life must be pretty good yeah but he did a pretty good job painting the story of like what it actually takes to have success you know yeah i'm excited for these guys listening to this one so check him out the league presents electric people we are joined today by major league pitcher jeremy guthrie Friend of direct sales, developmental leader, and a multi-accomplished man before us. How are you, Jeremy? Doing great, guys. It's good to be with you today. Well, thanks for being on, man. We sure appreciate it. I, we, were, we were reminiscing before we started running that the last time I saw you, you were on a Vivint um, smart home sponsored trip. You got a major league pitcher on the trip. And I thought it was funny. We were staying at the Grand Wailea in Maui. And it took all of what, like maybe an hour before you'd been roped into a throwing contest to see who could throw a baseball the farthest over that little white church, like on the grounds. And before it was like full on, like male testosterone, just flying all over that place. I was not in that contest, as you can imagine, Adam. I was like the camera guy. I weren't expecting you to ask me the question. <laughs> but that was 2010. So in the last 11 years, man, we followed you on a journey and we're really glad to have you on and tell your story today. So again, man, thanks for being here. I feel like we awesome. should start with the shoes. Can we do that? Well, yeah, we can start with anything you want. Okay. This is our show. What do you want Adam. to start with? Did you know that Jeremy Guthrie is a notorious sneakerhead. Really? Yeah. So it's actually one of the coolest things. So, you know, we have a, a Nike partnership at at Sunrun. So our okay. direct sales force has a Nike sponsorship. And so we're constantly looking for the right drop for the right shoes. But you're you're really into sneaker culture. You you've got a whole collection there. Where did that start for you and how how deep into it are you? Well, it started when I was uh, just a young man. I grew up in Oregon and so uh, I was born in 79 so by by the time I was seven years old was when Michael Jordan was really um, coming into the league and making a name for himself. And my brother, who was in ninth grade at the time, they all wore Air Jordan 1s on their basketball team. And it was called Joe Lane Junior High School. They were what red, color, black, What color white. Jordan 1s? Oh, yeah. Those are the... Well, okay, were, he's got them. He's got them. Yeah, let's see here. We're, um, they probably cost a fraction there. back then of what they cost now, too, huh? Uh, I think $65 was the original price for Jordan ones back in the day in 1985. But so his junior high team, all Dude, he's the got Jordan them handy. The, he's got them from his desk yeah. to his hand in 30 seconds. Um, Check that the out. Whole team, the whole team wore these. And I thought, I'm like, that's incredible. And I really didn't know too much about Michael Jordan at the time. You know, you don't have cable. So you, you hear a few things there, here and there and see them on sports illustrated. So my family, uh, 
was kind enough to get me a pair of the small sizes, which were back in the day called Sky Jordans. They've never actually retroed them with Sky Jordan, but the originals like these say those Sky are, Jordan. Those, those got some like those got some like experience in them, yeah. huh? How much are those worth? They do. I don't know on a pair of Sky Jordans, a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars if if you're lucky, but not a ton of of value to them. But this was the first pair of Jordans I had, and so thus it began uh, a love of Michael Jordan, which led to a love of sneakers. Um, I love all Nikes, and so I have a ton of Nike basketball shoes as well, like ones that were my favorite in high school. And uh, and then I have, you know, a couple hundred pairs of Air Jordans to go with it. So, yeah, I mean, in fact, I can probably show you some of my – this is my favorite uh, – this is my favorite basketball shoe in high school that I wore. This is not the actual pair. This is a retro pair, but – So I can't believe the, you knew to keep them in high school. I feel like the keeping and storing and stuff is fairly recent, but these are – these are authentic shoes you wore that are still in good shape that are that are stored in their boxes. Well, these, these ones are remakes, so no. Oh, okay. These ones are. I all actually, right. I do have the original. I don't throw away anything, and so I do have all my original pairs, including my Air Jordan <laughs> Four. I'm, I'm sure your wife loves that. <laughs> yeah, she does love that. But this was my. This is a '96 <laughs> Up Tempo. Uh, Ray Allen wore these at UConn back in the day, so I wore these my senior year. And uh, one of my all-time favorite basketball shoes. So yeah, so that's the basketball love. It just started with Michael Jordan. And being in Oregon, I think, uh, you know, it just runs in the water. Nike filters the water and everyone starts to love sneakers a little bit more here. So that's my story. Jeremy, I have a question. Do you think the radar guns at state fairs are rigged? You know what? I think they're rigged, but ironically, I think they're rigged backwards, which uh, is probably counterintuitive. In the major league stadiums, most people claim that they're rigged on the high end. So if I'm throwing 95 miles an hour. It probably shows 96 or 97. Yeah. Uh, but I've gone to I've gone to state fairs and I think the best fastball I've ever thrown is like 72 miles per hour. Oh, that makes me <laughs> feel so, way better. Actually, you're not even yeah. on like the board because listen, <laughs> I have video recording proof of me. You know, cold turkey, not having thrown in a long time, and I threw 71 at a state fair, and I'm like, I'm about to throw my arm off my body. And, uh, and then another kid beat me and I was like, there's just no way he's beating me. So, and he's probably listening. It's Austin Klinger. <laughs> Austin Klinger beat me in a throwing contest. Well, that actually doesn't seem impossible to me knowing both of you. I'm offended. I understand one. that, but we'll but, get through it. Uh, I'm convinced that they rigged the guns, uh, in the state fairs. But, um, so that actually leads to, so my next question that I actually had for you is at what age did you start to know that you had a different level of talent than all of, you know, your friends or kids you were playing with? Like at what point did you start thinking to yourself, like I'm throwing way harder than everybody around me? That's a good question. Um, I started at five years old in T-ball and I don't think I had any particular skill that stood out when I was younger, but I think by age 12, you know, there's always a couple players in, in little league where I played that hitters were scared of. And you knew when you hit a kid or when you threw it inside and they started kind of crying and just wanted to leave the batter's box that you were probably one of the harder throwers. <laughs> and so that that's the gauge. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if a kid cries and like you hear him in the dugout saying, I don't want to hit, I don't want to hit. then you probably throw hard. <laughs> that's fuel. And so yeah, we, man. <laughs> we had a lot of that. Uh, we had a lot of that in our little league when I was 11 and 12. So probably 12 years old is a real recognition that, hey, you know, I, I clearly throw harder than the majority of the pitchers. There was one kid, I forget his first name. Um, actually, I forget his last name for that matter too. But he threw, I think they clocked him at 73 miles an hour is what everyone said he threw in Little League at 45 feet. And uh, 
you know, it was, you could barely see the ball. I never got hit by him, but a few kids did. And, you know, they went to their knees and had to get carted off um, by a couple of, by a couple of parents and coaches. So um, that's that the answer that was around 12. It's a cool, it's a cool skill. Like at that age. So my son plays baseball. We're not like a baseball family, but he's really like taken to baseball. He's, he's 11 turning 12 in a couple of weeks. And there's a real difference, like, especially in just like overall enjoyment. I'm like, I got a, a fair amount of kids. So we, when it's baseball season, we're like watching a lot of games, but when they start to get into those like adolescent bodies, like the game gets so much more fun, right? They're throwing hard. They're starting to hit and the confidence associated with it and stuff is, is, is pretty awesome to watch. So did your family like develop the skill? Did they see it? Like when you were throwing hard, did you have coaches and stuff or is it just kind of something that you had a knack and then was fostered throughout your, throughout your life? Well, that's, that's a, when I was younger, I never had any particular specific coaches. So obviously we had coaches for our teams, sure. but I never did a pitch. I never did a single pitching lesson in my life until I was 23 years old and I was in college. Really? Um, you know, I never had a pitching coach per se. I mean, we had coaches who clearly knew the game of baseball, especially once we got into high school, I had a great coach, um, Bill Swartout, who was fantastic and he knew the game, but he wasn't some kind of former minor league player or pitcher that could give you like real nuts and bolts. He was just a guy that had seen the game for 30, 40 years. And so, um, no, I guess the answer is I didn't really have much coaching. I, but I am, for me, I'm a learner by observation. And I've learned that mm-hmm. over time that when I see something, I like to try to go and practice it and mimic it. And, and I th- feel like I have a natural ability to do that well. And so I think that's, you know, that's why my wife would probably tell you that whenever I watch a sport, I feel like I can perform well at it, no matter what it is. We were in Europe one time and I'm like, I feel like I can play soccer with all these guys. And she just started laughing <laughs> at me. Well, you think, you think you can play professional soccer in Europe? I said, yeah, like I can do that. And it's like because I'm a really I good think, observer. No. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's, there's a lot of truth, like in the fact that when I see something, when I saw it on television, I would try to mimic it. And, but and can you see it well enough? Like it's, it's crazy for me because like in watching like my son, you know, and like helping him or I have daughters that, that pitch in softball. And so they, I mean, it's crazy today because they're, they're eight and nine years old and they have, I mean, they've both had two different coaches now and then there's YouTube. And it's like, it's funny because my kids come to me and they're like, how do you throw this? I'm like, oh, let's look it up. But to not have at your level 23, it's not like, like watching baseball games they're giving you like the intricate details of somebody's hand position on a ball like how do you how do you do you just pick it up from talking to other people like that are playing at a little bit higher a level or what um i think it's a little bit of of everything where you do talk to kids like if you went to a baseball camp when you were younger Mm -hmm. you would ask the coach like hey where should my hand be and then there was that that was combined with watching like i watched sports my whole life growing up my two older brothers um were each three sport athletes in high school and we would go to every game of every sport and I would watch, like I would watch the way the kids warmed up in football and watch their technique, the way that they kept, uh, you know, their, their hips low to the ground as they backpedaled or the way they did certain drops as a quarterback, which is what position I played. And, and so I just, I watched and wanted to look like them. I think the sport that gave me the most challenge was basketball. I could watch basketball all I wanted, but I never could really dribble or make the moves as smooth as other, as other guys did. But for whatever reason, throwing with the nat- the natural ability that I did have and then watching it, I felt like I was able to kind of learn that way until I got older. And then I had coaches that had more kind of specific instruction and, and think- techniques that could help me kind of go to the next level. So, Jeremy, we, 
we had a former coworker years ago, Dan Reed. Remember Dan? Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember Dan. Uh, uh, yeah, Dan's a good friend. And Dan, <laughs> this is years ago. We were watching a baseball game, and he was convinced that if he concentrate, quit his job, concentrated on baseball for six months, he could make it into the minor leagues. And he's like in his like early thirties, you know, Dan's incredibly fit and very athletic. He's a, he's very fit, very athletic. And he was like, I, he's like, it's not that hard. You catch a fly ball, you hit a baseball, you know? And he's like, I'm convinced if I quit my job and I just did nothing but baseball, hired the best coach, everything I could get on a minor league team. And I'm like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Uh, you tell us, do you think someone could do that in their in their early 30s if they just had all the resources to hire all the coaches, everything, to like get on a minor league team? Six months to just go. Well, this is, a, this is a great segue into the movie that's going to come out on Christmas Day called, I think it's called Underdog, right? It's the story of Kurt Warner, the, mm-hmm. the Super Bowl MVP quarterback who worked at a grocery store. So my answer to you is, what's your friend's name? Dan, could, could Dan have done it? I'm convinced my dad always told me this when I was in high school. He says, listen, you know, if you get a chance to play college sports, be grateful because there's a hundred guys walking around every campus. They could literally play on your football team, your basketball team, your baseball, your track, swimming, whatever it might be. He says they're everywhere because it's, it's the opportunity where there's that intersection between preparation and opportunity equals success. He says, you, you may be one of the best players ever, but if no one ever sees you, what does it matter? And that was my case. No one ever saw me in baseball until I was 18 years old, three months away from graduation. I had no, no opportunity to play baseball beyond high school and no thought of playing it because no one had ever seen me or offered me a scholarship or anything of the, of the, of the such. So I believe could Dan have been, I, I believe there's people walking around and if Dan is as athletic as you say he is, and he really put his mind to it, I think he could probably accomplish it. Now, would he get the opportunity? Maybe not, because they're not looking for 32-year-old athletes to start their career in minor league baseball. But but I would, I mean, if it's a young man or if it's a 32-year-old, like, go for it. Why not? Get like, it, if that's man. your dream and get you it. believe it, be, be the underdog. And so, Kurt Warner, I think that, that story is going to probably, you know, resonate with a lot of people because I think, now, now don't get me wrong, for every Kurt Warner, there's, 3.7 million people that can't do it and won't succeed and will probably fall flat on their there's, face. There's a bunch of guys but, drinking, <laughs> watching games, being like, I could totally do it. Have you seen that Kurt Warner yeah. guy? I'm just like him. And yeah. his friends are like, bro, you're not. You know what's funny? Right for so, you. Um, and I played college football at Southern Utah. And uh, every year for the last like 10 years, the gym I go to during the combine portion of the year, so like April or whatever, when the NFL does their combine, my gym will post all the NFL combine numbers and then they do like NFL combine stuff at the gym. So you can do all the same like mm. drills, whatever, yeah. except they won't let anyone run a 40 yard dash. Cause people were like pulling hammies all day. So, um, <laughs> but like the little shuttle drills, like the bench press, like all that stuff. So I would like do it and then like compare myself to like how I would stack up against this year's draft class. And I was always like, <laughs> and I was always like, God, I'm like, I swear I could have played. I swear I could have played. Back in 82, you could throw <laughs> yeah, that football exactly. a quarter mile. Yeah, so. so 18 years old and you hadn't seen anyone play. So what, or no one had really given you the opportunity. So was that, walk me through your mindset. Did you think when you were that age, I mean, you had to be the best regionally, right? You were probably, you know, when you were, no. were you not? 
So did no, you did you have aspirations of going pro and were frustrated because no one was seeing you, or did you not know you had the potential that you had because that nobody was telling you that? Funny story. Last week we were at my son. He's a, a freshman, and we were at his basketball game at a high school here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. And they had the 1997 All-State Baseball Team uh, Oregonian printout, which is what they do for all, you know, all sports here in prep sports. And we looked at the uh, the three first team, second team, third team All-State pitchers, and then the honorable mention pitchers. And I say hey, that's the year I graduated. I played against that guy and that guy and a couple other guys. And my daughter says, "Well, like, are you on here for pitching?" I said, "No, I wasn't even. Uh, I don't even know if I was first team All League." let alone, you know, recognized all stage. Like, how can that possibly be? How can you I'm not with be? Her. How can that possibly Who game? in Oregon's throwing better in 1997 than Jeremy Guthrie? <laughs> At least 15 guys that we read. I have it on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to list them? <laughs> uh, the player so how of the did year it I looked up. It happened um, because I had a teammate who was supposed to be a top three round draft pick. And every year, you know, there's, I think the draft is 50 rounds, so 1,500 amateur players roughly are drafted each year to play professional baseball. And we had a guy named Aaron who was supposed to be a top three-round draft pick. Um, and if not, maybe go Division One at a minimum. And so the scouts came to watch him. And uh, when they came to watch him, they just happened to watch me before he pitched. And, uh, you know, in high school, really, if you throw a certain velocity, you're going to get attention. And that day I was throwing about 92 miles per hour. And so from that point on, these scouts who were recruiting Aaron said, well, who's this guy? And why don't we know about him? And the truth is my first two years I had, um, my first year as a sophomore, I didn't play this because I wasn't considered one of the best pitchers on the team. So the coach used other guys. My second year where I would have pitched more, I hurt my back and I didn't play much. And then to add on, on to that, we didn't have a summer team or a club team. And so mm -hmm. my only chance to pitch was during that three-month high school season. And in mm -hmm. my first two years, sophomore, junior year, I didn't pitch. I think I pitched a total of 22 innings or so. And so there was no visibility. I, I really wasn't pitching anywhere for anyone to see. And so my, my hopes and aspirations were not. When I was younger, I had a, a hat that had a major league logo on it. And I used to wear it every day when I was 12 and 13. And I, so I think I did have aspirations when I was young. Yeah. By the time I got to high school and was never pitching, um, I didn't really have those dreams or those hopes. I did want to be a football player though. And so I sent, you know, I wanted to be a quarterback at BYU and that was kind of my, my dream. And that's what I was going to pursue until the call it, until the baseball scholarship, um, kind of came to fruition later at the end of my senior year. Question. So you spent, um, roughly seven years in the minors. Is that right? Um, no, that's you not, your, thankfully. You, I read you got your major league debut in 04. So you had what yeah. three years in the minors and then, and then your debut and then kind of toggled back and forth between uh, yeah, was it the so and the minors a little bit. I signed in 02 and I didn't play my first professional game till 03. Um, so I played, I played four seasons in the minor leagues or portions of four seasons in the minor leagues. So, as you're spent, I'm always fascinated by baseball because there's such a minor league process. And you, you mentioned mm -hmm. there's 50 rounds in the draft and they do that every single year. So imagine how many minor league programs there are across the country. I mean, it's like the bottom of the bottom is like a step above, you know, high school, college, I would assume. Right. And then it just, well, that, yeah, I mean, some of the, 
I, I played on teams in minor league baseball that I'm certain could not have beaten my college team. So right. there's oh, really? a mixture of there's a mix yeah there's a mixture of a lot of a lot of different athletes in the minor league. So these guys are all just grinding. So at what point was there ever a point where you started questioning is this even worth my time anymore, um, or did you always kind of just have that belief that you were going to get there one day? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I think most players, a lot like the majority, have a point where they feel like it's not going to happen for them. Like uh, I, I don't, there's not many players that ascend through the minor league system and make it to the major leagues and only experience success. The game is very humbling. It's a very challenging game. And so even the best of the best have rough seasons or parts of seasons. And, uh, you know, the lesser players like me and, and the majority of major league players struggle more often than, than occasionally. So my, my start to my career was incredible. The first three months of my minor league career in 2003, um, they were discussing just how long, how quickly would I be in the major leagues after just a month and a half of playing professional baseball. Um, you fast forward four, three and a half years later, I'm still in the minor leagues and they're wondering if it was the, you know, the most overrated draft pick for the Cleveland Indians in their history, because I hadn't been able to continue that momentum and that growth. And I struggled for really my second and third year. I struggled immensely to the point where if they hadn't had invested so much into my career, into my signing bonus and my contract, I probably would have been a player who was released. But I struggled did have the like mentally of, or physically. Like, were you hurt, or do you just like have no, a hard time? Never, like, never physically, thankfully, but mentally, yeah. Um, you know, on the field, my performance wasn't good, which then leads to you know mental mm-hmm. struggles. Like, can I do this? Am I good enough to do this? The question of did I want to do it that never really entered my mind. I think I enjoyed it. If I didn't want to do it, it wasn't because of the sport of baseball. It was because of the politics and the, you know, frankly, the coaches and just the actual experience of what was happening. But I always loved baseball. I always enjoyed um, pitching and having a ball in my hand and being able to compete against hitters. So that part of it, I don't think ever, I never really lost that. But when you, when you suck and you're not good and the climb seems um, like something you can't make, it's just, you don't see the, the top of the mountain, then I think for all of us, it gets really challenging. And I experienced that really in years two and three, and maybe the beginning of year four before it turned around for me. So what, what caused it to turn around? Um, from a baseball standpoint, I had a coach that he wasn't trying to help me per se. We were all kind of struggling and he just gave us a piece of advice. He told us, he actually asked us, who have you, can pitch successfully up in the zone, belt and above. And, you know, I think a couple of guys kind of ambitiously raised their hands. You can put your hands down, guys. You can't. <laughs> and there was one pitcher. There, there was one pitcher that he this believed. This guy was trying pitch. to help you here? Like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't raise my hand. I knew, I knew I couldn't, but there's a few guys that thought they could. In reality, he said, there's one of you that can do that. He said, he does it successfully. But he said, the rest of you, you continue to try to do it, whether you're intentionally doing it or whether you just don't practice enough to avoid doing it. You're all pitching from the thigh to the belt. He says, that's why we all suck. He says, until you learn to throw it below the knees, you have no chance. He says, all of you will be released. You'll be sent down. You can, you can continue to try to do this here at AAA, but we're terrible. And until you learn, you have to pitch below the knees. That's where you're going to be the rest of your career. So you figure it out. And he just walked out of the room. And so, kind of sarcastically 
I mean, my throwing partner went out there, my teammate, and we're like, hey, we just got to throw everything below the knees and we'll be successful. And we would just fire bullets <laughs> at each other's knees. And like, it was like we had balls flying all over the outfield and warmups because we were just throwing it as hard as we could at each other's shins. Everybody's and watching and, like, who are these clowns? Yeah, <laughs> these guys hate each other. They must hate each other. They're throwing <laughs> the ball at each other's shins. Um, but my focus became less of trying to hit a corner and trying to throw a perfect curveball and trying to do all these other things that I thought were going to make me successful. And I just focused on one thing. And that was throwing the ball. I didn't, I didn't care if it was right down the middle. My only goal was to throw it low. And so that became the competition between me and my friend. Let's just throw it low and let's see how many guys we can get to hit the ball on the ground. Let's try to get quick outs and have quick games. If we're going to suck and give up a, a ton of runs, let's at least do it quickly so we can get back to the hotel by 10 o'clock instead of having a three and a half hour game and get home by 1130. And that became our thing. And, and the results actually turned my career around where I began to see people get out what he was preaching was true. And then the more I did it, the more I bought into it. And so I, I went from trying to think, how do I make perfect pitches all over the air, all over the strike zone to just trying to make one pitch. My only pitch I was trying to make was low. That was it. I didn't care if it was inside, outside. I just wanted to be low. That is, forgive the direct sales analogy, but that's so perfect to like where um, a lot of the training that we're doing with our guys right now is. Because I, I picture you you know, with this dream and you love the game enough to keep doing it, but man, being quote unsuccessful for four years, like you said, sucking, I wouldn't have said sucking, but since you said it, that gives me permission. Sucking for four years is terrible, right? Like I think of guys coming in that do door to door sales and you have a lot of friends in the industry. So you know, this world, I think, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people that have done it. So you know, this world pretty well, but man, most people can't handle to suck for a week. They, they just yeah. can't, right? And like their past experience has been, I'm always the best at everything. And so they come in and they suck and they almost just can't do it. And so they quit. But what I found is the ones that are successful, it's not necessarily that they're more talented or that they even want it more. It's that they focus on the right thing at the right time. So like our beginners, you know, when they come in, even if you're like, you know, a lot of us started in, in smart homes, so selling alarms, switched to solar. So even if you're an expert at, at smart home and then you come into solar, our very best guys get into this mode when they're beginners and they're like, I just need to, I just need to focus on the process. I just need to put in the reps. And if they do that, they blast through their levels really quick. And then once they get a little bit better, they start working on their strategy. But I see a lot of beginners start working on their strategy and it's too soon. So you mentioned like trying to hit a quarter or something like that. Like, I bet these are all good things. It's just not the best thing for the exact phase that you were in. And it's kind of crazy that your coach, it almost sounds like he, I mean, just hearing the story secondhand, it almost sounds like, all right, you group come in here. I'm going to give you some advice that might save your life. But it was really effective because it got you to focus on the right thing at the right time. So how important is it to be coachable in those moments. We'll get into it, but I know you've done a lot of development of young adults, uh, especially young adult men. So how important is it uh, to be coachable in those moments? I think that was probably the key for me is I think had someone told me that in year one or two, I probably would have blown them off because I was mm. successful in, in college. I was an All-American. I was a finalist for the Golden Spikes and I was a first round draft pick. So what I had done had worked. So I don't need you to tell me how to do this. I, I've been good at what I do. And not only that, I was good at what I did, which was the exact same sport, right? You're probably getting a lot of guys yeah. to come in that were good at, that were good at other things. Like I was good at mm -hmm. school. I was good with people. I was good at sports. I'm a successful person. I work hard. 
And so I know how to do this. I'll figure this out. And so coachability is, is, is ultimate and paramount. But I know that what you experience and what, what I've seen is that there comes a time when someone becomes more coachable and it's great when they start that way. Unfortunately, not everybody is that way. Some of us have to reach kind of rock bottom or, or experience the pain of failure before we're willing to do it. And, um, you know, that's, that really just cost you time. Like when I look back at my career, it was just lost time. Some of the things I probably could have applied in year two or three that I didn't, you know, those were lost, those were lost years for me. Um, I'm still grateful for the ones I had ahead, but I think that's what you look at when you think about uh, your sales team is um, what can we do to inspire coachability? And I don't know if there really is anything you can do, uh, but just be patient. So I guess maybe the message is more for the leaders, the, you know, the managers, like don't give up on those guys and hopefully they don't give up on themselves and take it in and, and pack it up and go home after a couple of months. And I had a number of missionaries that came back and did summer sales and some of them were our, our strongest missionaries. And <laughs> those were the ones that struggled the most, uh, in some cases. And, mm. and I knew it, I said, you know, just stick with it. You're, you have all of the ability to do it. You're just learning a new craft. And so be coachable, listen, be patient and, uh, and endure. I mean, just, you know, put the gospel into your life of enduring and, and I'm certain things will turn around and, almost all of them at this point are continuing those who stuck with it continue to work in sales and they they really enjoy it now they're starting to find um you know a lot of outward success in the work they do jeremy i've i've had conversations with a few different pro athletes um and that almost all of them have said when i say when you look back at your career what was one of the coolest maybe most exciting moments of your career and almost all of them have said the day they got drafted, but they were uh, like Sean. I talked to Sean Bradley once from BYU, and he said that was the best. Mm-hmm. His favorite day of his entire basketball career was the day he got drafted, and then every every day after that was just like a grind, and you know, like reality sets in after that, right? So, yeah. Um, but I imagine I've never asked that question to a professional baseball player, and I I'm imagining the the answer might be the day that you get called up to your first game in the majors. Uh, would be the most similar thing to that, but I would I would assume it's probably not draft day because every time someone in baseball gets drafted, they know they have this road of minors ahead of them, right? It's like being drafted into yeah. boot camp. <clears throat> yeah, so, you still got to go to buds, <laughs> right? So it's like, um, so maybe I guess answer the question most, or I guess maybe how 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 that compares to you know a draft day in another sport. But um, I'm really interested to know the fascination for me is you spent all these years in the minors grinding and then you finally have that moment where your coach comes in or whoever comes in and says, Hey, you know, you're going to the show. Like, can you walk us yeah. through that experience? Yeah. Well, you're, you're really observant in, in identifying that the major league draft is quite a bit different than the NFL or NBA or per, other sports. In this day and age, the, the MLB draft does take place in person, which is a relatively new, uh, phenomenon for them. I think they fly people to New York City and and take them into the studio or into New Jersey where they have MLB Network. But for me, I remember I was in college and uh, I got a phone call and they just say, "Hey, we drafted you." And like you're like, "Okay," and you hang up the phone and you go <laughs> right back to class. So it is uneventful. I guess I got drafted. And, right? Well, yeah, I, I got, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. You were walking with some swagger after that call, though. 
Like you were, you were walking around campus, like going, yo, I just got drafted. Does it come to a cell phone back then? I mean, you're 79. Or did the, did it like, did they leave a message on your dorm room answering machine? He got paged. He got a page, a 911 page. Then he called it back. The Indians. I had had both. Listen, I have the Nokia phone somewhere here because I keep everything as we started the show with, right? Dude, I like this. (laughs) All day. I got, I got, I got every cell phone I've ever owned. I have them all. What? Except for in the case one, technology, for the in case one. vintage technology comes back? I just like having them. It's like, you know, it's like, I like old school stuff. I'm an old, uh, I'm an old school, old fool, but I was going to show you something cool. I have not I have my original iPod and that's with the actual <laughs> turntable and the buttons on it. We're yeah. way off track. I digress. Um, the point is you're right though. The draft is a little bit different in terms of how it's ex- executed. And then really the reality is like, I'm not going to start for the Cleveland Indians, as it was in my case next year, I'm going to be stuck in Kinston, North Carolina or Akron, Ohio or, or Burlington, right? All these minor league teams that the Indians used to have. And so it is a little bit different, but that's not to say there isn't a number of kids that on draft day are with their families and it's a dream come true. Um, I'll be honest, like for me, being drafted, playing professional baseball was never my goal. Like that's not who I am. I think a lot of people, um, and that's fine is, you know, they, they associate and they kind of get their value or their, who they are is what they do. And that's never been the case for me. Um, you know, I play baseball, but at the end of the day, I don't really consider myself a baseball player. So it wasn't like my, my dream all, like I wasn't all in, like I have to be a baseball player or my life is going to be miserable. Like I had a lot of other interests and I worked hard at baseball and I was given an opportunity and I'm grateful for it. And so, um, what was the other part of the question though? You talked about when you're uh, drafted. Walk us, walk, walk us through the day you got called up. Oh, the day I got called up. So that was, that was also a little bit different for me because when I was called up, I was in my second full season of baseball. So I was uh, 24 years old pitching in double a uh, in 2004. And frankly, I was pitching, I was pitching terrible. And they had just moved me from being a starter to being a relief pitcher. And I hated relief pitching so much that it, like I was, I was almost emotionally on edge. Probably the most frustrated I ever was in my career was being in the bullpen in the minor leagues in year two. Like, you know, what is this? Like I've, I was drafted last year. They've already put me into the bullpen. They've given up on me. I hate this. Like I did hate baseball when I was in the bullpen for that week, but I found out on the way to, we were driving to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I had just pitched in Reading and I pitched fine out of the bullpen, but I absolutely hated it. And I was making a big kind of, kind of a scene, you know, you look back at it, like I was, I was not handling the way that, that I should have. And my manager calls me up. He's like, Hey, you know, how you doing? I'm like, dude, I hate this. I don't want to be in the bullpen. He's like, I get it. Like, I, I don't, I know, I don't, I know you don't want to be there. I can see how frustrated you are. Um, you know, the guys look up to you, try to be an example as best you can. And, and just go with it. Like the team obviously has plans for you that they want to move you there. I said, what plans can they possibly have? They're just, they're just demoting me to the bullpen. I'm not, I don't want to do this. He says, well, would you want to do it if you're in the major leagues? Well, I said, yeah, I want to do it. I'd, I'd do it in the major leagues. That'd, that'd be a lot better. That'd, that'd <laughs> I, wouldn't be fine. I wouldn't hate it then. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't hate it as much. He says, well, good. Cause that's, he says, that's where you're going tomorrow. You're going to go to the major leagues. And so, no way. Um, yeah. So, you know, I almost feel bad about my call up because I was, I was in a really low spot and I was very selfish and I was like, I hate this. The team hates me and I wasn't pitching well. And they were just moving me to the bullpen because they were trying to actually jumpstart me. And they told me, I said, listen, we were just trying to give you something 
to kind of turn things around because you'd been in this little spiral for about five months of the season. And so they called me up almost out of pity. And still to this day, like I just feel kind of guilty about my call up because I don't feel like I earned it. I feel like I just was, mm. I, I was given, I was given the opportunity because I was so bad. They were trying to see what could help me. And then hey, I pitched well, in all fairness, right. You know, I, in yeah. fairness, they didn't say, Hey, we're moving you here because we think this might help and we have plans for you. You thought you were getting like put out to pasture. So, you know, oh, 100%. you can feel a little I, yeah, bad I, about it, but not a hundred percent bad. Someone should have told you something, right? Who knows? Uh, if, if they were testing me to see how I handled it, I failed that test miserably. Um, <laughs> I spent the next 40 days in the major leagues and, uh, and made my debut uh, a couple of days later. And, and so that's how that went. He's like, he's like when you get your wife a gift, you come home, she's mad at you and you haven't told her you got the <laughs> gift yet. And then you wait till she's done being mad at you. And you said, Oh, Hey, by the way, I picked this up for you on the way home. I got you. This. And then she yeah. just feels terrible. You know, that's exactly what your coach did to you. He's like, he let yeah. you throw a little temper tantrum. And then he's like, all right, well, it's so, we got a little gift for you. It's so interesting <laughs> though. Like thinking like now you have like the benefit of like having a lot of success, which we'll get to. And like, uh, you know, like obviously you're, you're speaking today from a more elevated mindset. But I actually think it's really good to have those times where you can look back and be embarrassed about your behavior uh, in a professional setting. Like, I know I have them. I, we give sales trainings all the time. And one of the things I like to talk about are just times where I've been really embarrassed at, at the way I've behaved. Because if you're not, if you can't look back, if it's still someone else's fault, Jeremy, if it's still, oh, they don't see my talent. It's like, dude, you haven't gotten anywhere. But if you can look at it in the future and be like, man, I actually like, I wish I would have behaved different. I think it's good to have a few moments like that because it means you're moving past it and can look at it from another perspective, right? And now you can tell your kids, hey, bear it well, right? A lot of times it's a test, roll. Don't be like me where you, you know, had to have this like moment with your manager or whatever. But when you, you, you had the ups and downs didn't continue then. It's not like you went into the major league and had nothing but success the entire time. So what are the, what are the, some of the continued ups and downs that you had to learn through once you got that call up? The call up happened in 04. And uh, the next couple of years, I was also called up periodically to pitch in the major leagues, most of it out of the bullpen. And so I never really, I never really stuck in the major leagues as a Cleveland Indian. Um, and after the 06 season, I was uh, released and claimed off of waivers by the, the Baltimore Orioles. And um, I had a lot of great success with Baltimore. And the first two years I pitched really, you know, probably as good as any rookie pitched the first year. Daisuke Matsuzaka was the rookie of the year. But, but I pitched really well. And the second year I came back and pitched great again. And I even started opening day. And then, then in my third profession, my third major league season was a really tough one. And uh, that's when a lot of people kind of started to doubt again and, and come in. So those, and at that point, I feel like my career was, was very much, you know, the first two years were great. The next year was rough. The next year was really good. The next year was in the middle. The next year was rough. And so um, I think what I learned in the minor leagues about persevering and working hard, going through it and recognizing that it'll turn around and, and it can in a heartbeat that gave me a lot of confidence, even when things were tough in the major leagues. And um, obviously the stakes are much higher when you're on a major league team, both in terms of career and earnings and contracts, but also fans and, and being there to win a, a World Series and a championship. It's not that, you know, the minor leagues is just development. They don't really care if your team goes 30 and 100 or mm. if they go 105 and you know 25. They just want, they want to see their players improve so they can ultimately help the top team win the major league. And so 
you could have a minor league system that has all losers. Now, granted, you want to develop a winning culture, but in reality, they're just looking at individual growth and they'll take it however it comes. So I think uh, really as I had to manage, yeah, as I had to manage that in, in my professional career, I really had to kind of have my own personal goals and my own plan of how I was going to achieve those and stay true and consistent to that process that I had seen help me really throughout my life, but even more specifically in my professional career in the minor leagues that helped me get to the major leagues. And I felt like that was the, you know, for us, I think we understand the term, the iron rod. Like that was my iron rod that I held on to. is I have a few things that I do to prepare that put me in the best, best position to win. And I'm going to stay true and consistent to those, even if the outward results are negative because I've seen them work. I've, I've honed them, I've adapted them. And I know the principles of what they are, are going to help me. And so, uh, you know, 2012 was probably my worst year in professional baseball. And I started with the Colorado Rockies and I was as bad as anyone in baseball. Um, maybe the worst statistical pitcher and, and just had no success whatsoever. And I was traded to another team, uh, the Kansas city Royals. And it was that process and that confidence that if I just kept chugging along that it could turn around and it did, you know, I went from a guy that was not going to have a, probably a, a contract or a future to a guy that was able to play, uh, you know, nearly four years with a team that went to the world series twice. And so, um, that was kind of the pinnacle of, of everything is that with those ups and downs and challenges and the career being threatened to maybe be over that uh, I stuck to the process that I had learned when I was in the minor leagues and it worked. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Pitcher's such a crazy position too. I was going like, to say that. His, like, his, um, well, and I don't, we don't have to talk about it in depth, but um, the years you were in Kansas city was also the year that you, you know, really got paid well. And um, you were what five and four after you got your con, like leading up to getting your contract. It was something, something along the, I, I was reading um, just like your stats today and it wasn't like you went like 16 and two and then got paid. Like you were like, you had a great year, but like in major league baseball, it's so hard because even the record may not reflect how good he was doing. You know what I mean? It's like the four losses or whatever. There could have been six fielding errors during those losses sure. where the the shortstop makes a bad throw and another guy gets on base, guy scores, run. It's like there's so many variables that go into determining if a pitcher is a good pitcher. So, and the other thing that I, I've always thought about this is major league pitcher is the one position where you are like on such an island, especially in like the World Series when you pitched in, you pitched two games in the World Series, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you have millions and millions of people watching you and you're standing on a mound by yourself. I mean, like, what is going through your head between every pitch? Like, are you just repeating a mantra to yourself between every pitch? Like, what are the what are the subtle reminders that you had you know, especially to like calm your nerves or like after someone gets a hit or, you know, somebody, you know, hits a home run off you or whatever. Like, how do you like, what's going on, you know, between the ears, between every pitch, right? As you're pitching, like just walk us through like the mentality of pitching in a massive moment like that. I think the, the answer is if there's a lot of stuff going through your head because of the moment and the, you know, the stage that you're on, you're probably in trouble. 
you know, if you're thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that, this, this is a sellout crowd and they're all going crazy and it's the world series. And if we win this, we were world. And the champions. Royals haven't won a world series in 30 years. Yeah. yeah and you think years. about, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and on top of that, a lot of people are watching and they're going to be like, wow, he's a real bum mm-hmm. or he's a real hero. If you're thinking about any of that, you're in trouble. And so I can say for me, when I was pitching, I think those thoughts come to your mind before you get on the mound, but you do your best to clear your mind from those even days in advance. But when you're on the mound, at least in my circumstance, and, and I presume for all pitchers, certainly at that level, um, really once you're on the mound, all you're thinking about is your very next pitch. And if a guy gets a hit, you're like, okay, I need to, I need to throw an effective pitch down in the zone and get a double play. Or I need to throw an effective pitch. Maybe I try to throw it inside so I can get a broken bat and a soft ground ball to turn a double play that way. And, uh, and that's the way you think. You just you just build from next hitter to next hitter. Um, you don't look at you don't look too far beyond that um, because it can it can become overwhelming and it certainly distracts you from what you need to do to execute your very next task, which is pitch. Right? Most pitching coaches will talk pitch to pitch. That's the way you have to operate in this game. So uh, even with all going on around me in the games uh, that I pitched, I had the, you know, the chance to pitch two World Series games. Um, for me, they felt more or less once I started, just like any other game I ever pitched in. Um, before leading up was different, and kind of the relief and the satisfaction after the game, after I was done pitching, was very different. But the five innings uh, you know, that I threw in the middle felt like any other game that I would mm. be throwing. I think in the, in the documentary of your life, what's likely going to happen is you're going to go to take the mound and you're going to see in your head that minor league pitching coach that says, just hit him in the knees, Guthrie. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be like, all right, that old <laughs> cuss Disney, was right. That's movie. right. And you're going to get in there yeah. and you're going to have one or two yeah, disappointing There'll be throws. flashbacks of him taking ground or like short hoppers off his shins. And you're going to focus in and just start yeah. rifling him at the shins. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. There you go. <laughs> how, much, how much homework do you do on a batter before you go against him, especially in a World Series game? I mean, are, do you have like, like all the statistics? Like in this pitch count, he statistically will swing and miss at this pitch certain percentage of the time. Like, like how in depth are the stats against each batter you're throwing, you know, as you see him walking up to hit, you know, like what you're, you're calculating all these things or is all being relayed from the coach to the catcher. And then the catcher's just telling you what to do. That's a constantly evolving kind of, um, nuance in sports and baseball is i feel like baseball is at the front edge of it although i'm not 100 percent certain on that when i played in 2015 we had plenty of information i could know every hitter's batting average in every single possible count against right-handed hitters or pitchers or left-handed pitchers i could know their swing and miss rate like you talked about on certain pitches um in this day and age you know even more than that you can get get more information about each of the hitters and so I personally enjoyed doing the homework. I liked having the confidence that if it was two balls and one strike, that his worst pitch was a changeup and that he batted, you know, 115 off of changeups and a 2-1 count if they were if you threw a strike. That gave me confidence if I knew kind of a plan of attack. Some pitchers really don't care what the hitter does. They identify their strength and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stick to my strengths, you know, uh, no matter what, no matter what comes my way. And there's an element of that that I would implement as well. I had to look and know what my best pitches were. And if, if my worst pitch was a curveball and his worst pitch was a curveball, I had to decide, well, if it's not likely that I'm going to throw a good curveball, then even if it's his worst pitch, it may not work. 
And so I couldn't let too much of the information change who I was, but I tried to identify a plan in advance of where his weaknesses were, where my strengths were, and blend them together as best I could to come up with the most you know, likely way of succeeding. So for me, I enjoyed that part of it. A lot of pitchers don't. Like, they don't want to hear about it. And coaches will tell them, and they're like, okay, and it goes in, in one ear and out the other. And they go out, and at the end of the day, if they pitch well, the coaches don't care either. If you throw the wrong pitch and the coach told you don't throw that pitch in this count and they give up a home run, obviously the coaches get a little bit upset by that one. But um, I enjoyed the informational side, and so I prepared a lot. I'd watch anywhere between three and four outings against a pitcher that I deemed was similar to my style. And I would just try to, I just, I would, what I really stood out, what I wanted first and foremost were things that stood out either on the negative side for the hitter or the positive side. Like if you, if you threw a certain pitch and he took a terrible swing at it, I wanted to know that if you threw a really good pitch and he took a really good swing at it, some anomaly where like you threw a three, one curveball and he hit a home run to dead center. I wanted those big outliers to stand out so that I could learn from those. And then most of the information was crowded in the middle, right? Where there was nothing dramatic that stood out, but I kind of would look at patterns and then I would come up with a plan. Um, I would communicate any, that as best I could to my catcher and then go forward. Was there any batter that just that, that we would know that just owned you? And then conversely, yes, was, there any was there any batter that we know that you owned? There's plenty that you so, know. So was, it, was there a good batter? <laughs> was, there, was there a good batter that you were like, he was really good, but for whatever reason, I just matched up well against him and I, yeah. you know. I have a couple of those. So good batters that uh, I never got out, or at least not with any consistency, were Robinson Cano, uh, David Ortiz. Big Poppy was virtually impossible for me. Um, Nick Swisher, uh, he, he was very challenging for me. A guy named Dustin Ackley, you maybe don't know who he is, but I think he batted like 750 off me with three home runs. Old, old Ackley walked up to the plate and Gus oh, was like, crap. oh my gosh. <laughs> This freaking guy. <laughs> this guy that no one's heard of. I'm going to hit just him in the yeah. belly. Straight owns me. Um, there, and there's a number of others. I'm, I'm sure I'm omitting quite a few guys that own me that you would know. On the flip side, guys that I did really well against, uh, I got three that I know of off the top of my head. Vladimir Guerrero, Hall of Famer, I think mm -hmm. went one for 19 off of me, and his only hit was like this little nubber. Um, Adam Jones was my, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember it. Adam Jones was my, uh, my teammate in Baltimore, uh, you know, multi, he's been an all-star many times, gold glove award winner. And he would always tell me that if he ever faced me, that he would knock my stuff all over the ballpark. And he went one for 21 off me with an infield <laughs> hit as well. Oh, that's, <laughs> that was, perfect. that's, that's, that's probably my most gratifying one because he talked he a lot, really of, talked, he talked a lot he, of trash. He, yeah. He, yeah. He did talk a lot. And then I faced him enough times that it was a, a significant, uh, you ever sample. just text him like randomly, just one for 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 what's his number? I'm going to show you one. Right no, now. Con no context. Just out of the blue. Just one dash 21. Maybe reach out to him on, uh, on, on Twitter, Instagram, oh, you simply know AJ, simply AJ Tensei. Adam, great career, you. big big fans, great career. What were your numbers against your teammate Guthrie? He was kind of a bum. How'd you do against <laughs> that guy? <laughs> and then my last one was uh, Nelson Cruz. Uh, still playing. I think he's like 43 years old and still hitting 30 home runs a year. He'd probably be a 500, 500 home run guy by the time it's all said and done. And I think he got a couple of hits and no home runs off me. So those are those are three really good hitters that have had great success against a lot of guys. Um, but not not yours truly. So there you have it. The um, the the thought of preparation, like you kind of like, you know, 
you could tell that you kind of light up a little bit when you talk about the strategy that you liked doing the work. It gave you extra confidence. Clearly you love baseball. So watching baseball strategically is probably not a chore for you. Um, but you know, how, how important is that in all aspects of life? Right. We, you know, we play a game, uh, you know, speaking to our direct sales, uh, you know, consultants that go out and work every day. A lot of them probably play the game a lot like some people that you saw where they're like, I'm just going to go out there and throw and swing. I'm just mm-hmm. going to, and then, and then they get really nervous when something happens or something unexpected happens. And then we have a lot of people that are very prepared that spend the hour before they go out, just dialing in, getting pre- uh, you know, prepped, like prepping their packets, thinking through scenarios, area strategy, just all kinds of things. Yeah. And it sounds to me like it's, it's interesting the way you talk about your career. Uh, you're, you're, you're just humble. Like, you know, the way your friends talk about you, who I know, and the way you talk about yourself is really different. Like people are stoked to know you and they want to talk about the world series and they want to talk about the career and they want to talk about the accomplishments and the way you talk about your career a little bit is like, well, you know, I, you've, you've spent a lot of time talking about the times where you weren't great. And then you've kind of downplayed the times where you were great. So two observations. Number one, it's kind of awesome that a great career is made up of that. It's not all wins, right? It's, it's literally a lot of misses, but then everybody kind of remembers the wins. But how important was that preparation in helping you like seize the moments? Because you have had some really poignant moments. Do you lend some of that to the strategy and the prep work that you've done to keep you in the fight just a little bit longer? For me, I think it probably goes back to lessons that I learned in high school from a really important coach in my life. Um, it was my high school football coach, Coach Nagel. And what he helped us do as football players and as students was he helped us understand good principles of goal setting. And he would bring us into his office at the end of the year and we would set goals for the upcoming season. And so he wanted us to do that before the summer because the summer was where all of the plans and the efforts and preparation were going to take place. And so I, I've told this story many times. So if anyone's ever heard me speak, they would know of this story, but I had a goal to be the starting quarterback as a junior and they hadn't had an underclassman starting quarterback in over a decade. And, uh, he made me identify my obstacles. And so I did. And he said, how can you overcome those? And we made a plan that was very detailed as to what I would do to try to become the best quarterback come fall of my junior year. And uh, at the end of the summer, he brought me in one by one. He said, listen, he evaluated our summer workouts. And he says, you led the team in hours in the weight room, hours at passing league and hours in conditioning. No one, no one did more work than you did. And then we went into fall practice in the summer practices and in the fall practice. And when the teams were announced, he called me in and said, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I know you're going to be disappointed, but you're not the starting quarterback for varsity. And I remember in that moment, like, I didn't feel bad at all. Like, I wasn't even necessarily disappointed. I, w- I didn't feel cheated in the slight, in the least bit, because the quarterback who was, was ahead of me was a senior. He was much more athletic. He was stronger. He was smarter. He had been doing it for longer than me. And I recognized that he was the better quarterback. Did I, did I have the confidence that I could go out there and perform to the same level as him? I actually did. I felt like I could do all that he could do, but, it w- but I, didn't, I couldn't have done anything more. And so I learned an important principle that you can feel satisfaction by fulfilling your plan, even when you don't reach your goals. And that's important. And I don't know what one feels like when they don't have a good plan and don't reach their goals because I've never been that person. I've never gone into something and just said, I'm just going to wing it and hope it works out. And then when it didn't work out, I have to say, well, 
geez, how do I feel about that? Because that, that's just not my mindset. Like I want to be prepared because I feel so satisfied with the efforts going in. And so for me, it's a lot about the process. And, you know, for some, they might call that, it's like becoming something. And if the goal matches up with the process and the preparation, then that's the cherry on top. That's ultimately what we want, but it doesn't always happen that way. And so the preparation is vital. Uh, for me, it's, it's vital for my mental health, my, you know, for my satisfaction as a human being and for my growth. And when the goals match up, that's just, that's just the additional prize at the end that in life, sometimes they happen and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, most of people would agree that life is not fair. And so do what you can do to become the best you can become. It's, uh, it's like the John Wooden quote, that says, success is the peace of mind, which is a direct result of the self-satisfaction in knowing that you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. That is success, knowing that you did your best and feeling that peace inside. And, um, you know, the end result of that story is two, two weeks into the season, the starting quarterback was suspended for an off the field uh, issue. I stepped in, played for three weeks. And when he came back, he told the coach, Jeremy should be the starting quarterback. I'll play tight end because he recognized the preparation and the way the team had played with me at the quarterback. And he realized he can do the job that I was doing and I can go add to the team by being a tight end. And we were a very good football team. And so it taught me when you are prepared and the moment does come and the opportunity now comes with the preparation, you earn the trust of all the players that watched you. You have the confidence to perform to the top level and ultimately the success will be there that you were dreaming of. So that's what, that's what preparation means to me. And uh, that's how I approach it in sports. I try to approach it and everything else the same way academically, whatever it was, I wanted to be prepared so that I could have opportunities. And that, that played an important role in my career as well. I was a 4.0 student in high school. I went to BYU as a freshman. When I came home, I had a chance to go to Stanford. And because of my grades, I could actually get into the school. And so um, it, all, it all connects. It's not just one part of your life that you have to prepare and work hard. You have to work hard in all of it. And I tell kids that all the time. I said, listen, you may think you're the best player in some sport. It doesn't mean you can leave academics behind. Let me tell you how academics played a role in my development because the coaching I got at Stanford made all the difference for me to be drafted to play professional baseball at the end mm -hmm. of my collegiate career. If I don't have the grades to go to that school, I don't get the coaching. I don't become the pitcher that I became in college. I don't get drafted and I don't have a career in baseball. And so it's all intertwined. It's not, you can't just take one part of your life and say, this is it. Jeremy, I think, I've always said baseball is the sport that most closely relates to our job of door-to-door -door direct sales because you're out knocking doors and you fail more than you succeed. And um, I tell our sales reps all the time, I said, you know, you have to remember in professional baseball, if you can get on base as a hitter three out of 10 times throughout your career, you're going to be in the hall of fame. You know, if you're if you're just, if you have an average just over three out of 10, you're going to be in the hall of fame. So you're failing 68, 70% of the time, and you're going to be regarded as one of the best to ever play the game. Right? So when you're out knocking doors, like remember the best in the world at baseball are failing 70% of the time. What, um, obviously you're a pitcher. And so we're, I'm always using like the hitting analogy and I wanted to hear, um, you know, I, I was reading on your page, uh, one of the worst, I guess, outings in your professional career. And I hate to bring up old wounds, but that's a big, that's a big, that's a big page. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, 
I told you that I was going to have some hard hitting questions for you. <laughs> May, May 25th, 2014, Jeremy gave up 11 runs in one game against the Yankees. 20, 2015. 2015. I feel like he's going to pull out the cell phone he was using that game in 2014. Yeah. He's like, no, no it was so, 2015. Don't, don't, uh, add, so don't 20... add another, don't, don't add a day of infamy to my career. Okay. Someone's <laughs> like, oh, well, someone's going to come walk away from this. The only thing they're going to remember from this, from this podcast or this, they interviewed a guy know, that gave interview. up 11 runs like, in the game. No, like, uh, wow. Guthrie gave up 11 runs in 2014, May and 2015. That guy's really bad. <laughs> was, so, uh, you know, when our guys are on the doors, they'll have a bad door, they'll have a bad sale, they'll lose a sale, whatever. And it's that time in between doors that I think a lot of our sales reps end up like working or like mentally like talking themselves out of a successful day because they don't recover from the failures. So in your career, you've, I know you've been really modest, but you've had a ton of success throughout your career. But in baseball, in general, you kind of fail more than you succeed. So how did you... Um, especially on a day like that where you just have a really rough day and I'm, I'm assuming you just knew you didn't have your best stuff right out of the gate and you were just grinding through it and, you know, coach leaves you in whatever, however it goes. But like, how did you bounce back in your next start from that? Like, cause I, like I'm, I'm not as interested in the, the bad game. I'm way more interested in how you recovered from that and how you continue to move forward from that. Um, <clears throat> I think that's that's a really important question. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what helped me in my career because that's that's one of my worst games, and so it's an easy one to look at. But as you said, there's also a number of other games that are real average to to bad throughout, and it's all that constant bouncing back. Um, you know, this may. I'm thinking about when I said earlier, a pitcher really goes pitch to pitch and that's the way you have to approach each game. Ironically, what helped me work through some of these more acute struggles in game or at the end, you know, a complete game or whether it was a bad inning was I would try to, in those moments, I would actually try to understand the grit, the depth and the breadth of the entire experience. So I'm having a bad inning. Okay. If I can, if I can just have a solid next inning, and work to have another solid next inning, I, at the end of the day, I can have an outing that still helps the team by not burning up all of our relief pitchers. Because when you come mm. out in the first, second, third inning, you actually hurt the team for future games because you have to use other pitchers. So now you have less mm. pitchers to use in the games that you're actually winning. And so, a lot of times I would say, okay, that's a bad inning. I need to at least go five innings still. I need to get into the sixth inning, even though we're probably going to lose this game. It's now five to one in the fourth, but I still need to do my job and help. And so, so I that's think that's a whole different game. That's well, really did your interesting. Coach, yeah. Did your coach say, how, what, how, what inning did you make it to in that game? Because I was thinking originally, like, why did they keep him in? Yeah. But I didn't know this. So this is really well, yeah, they don't want to, if they, if they burn up the relief pitchers, then yeah, they yeah. don't, then they're gone for the next game as well. Right. So it's like, yeah, the coach will know, just leave you in. So you're surviving Admit- out there. Admittedly, my coach said we probably should have took him out after the first because I went back out for the second. I only gave up, I only gave up eight eight runs in the first. I gave up the next three in the second inning, but I didn't but I didn't get an out. So it looks like eleven and one inning. <laughs> so hey, so, just you know, if it makes you feel worse, it, it, I thought it was eleven it, the whole game, not one inning. That's actually really intense. It, well, no. <laughs> it, 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 it was it was eleven my whole game, one inning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, okay. I mean that so is, in, uh, you can laugh about it now. 
and and that circum in that circumstance i didn't help my team i didn't accomplish my goal of saying well let me at least get further along i don't remember what happened the next subsequent games um i know i didn't pitch well all of 2015 so i'm going to assume that 2015 and that game are not my best examples of pitching really bad and bouncing back back and being fantastic (laughs) i don't know that i ever really bounced back but i don't think it was as much the the mental side of things as much as it was probably just the physical limitations because i'd had bad games and bounced back before so there was nothing to like say well why didn't i bounce back this time except for the fact that maybe i just wasn't good enough to bounce back right but that, um, that's more but, normal well, than but, not but, don't you think yeah yeah but i mean i stayed I mean, in the like fight, a lot of like, times yeah i stayed in the fight and kept going it wasn't like i just quit and i think that's that's ultimately the you know the, what you're looking for if you can find guys that that stink a lot but never quit and are willing to learn, then you can work with that. And maybe they don't become your Hall of Fame type salesman or your Hall of Fame player. But you can look back and say, you know what? I respect that guy. I respect the fact that he never gave in and kept working and kept going and contributed in small ways some days and in large ways other days. Um, But I think that's, I needed to, I looked at the greater job. Okay, this is not about me having a great game anymore. Like maybe that's how I went into it. I want to have a strong game. Now I'm just trying to help the team. Like my game stinks no matter what. If I go five innings and give up eight runs, they're going to say that's a terrible game. If I go three innings and give up eight runs, that's a terrible game. If I go one inning and give up eight runs, they're all terrible games. The difference is the five innings and eight runs, I don't hurt my team as much. And so I would look at it that way. And so I'd look Mm -hmm. at it that way from an inning to inning perspective. And I'd also look at it that way from a game to game perspective. Okay, I sucked last game, but I want to come back and give my team a chance to win the next one. And so I would try to forget what happened and move forward. And I think that's, you know, that's an important skill as well to have a short memory. Yeah. That's a really consistent like thing though. Like with the, with, to your earlier point about your emphasis on effort and preparation, you can feel confident, right? It, it, it's weird. Cause you keep, you know, you, when you're saying you're having a bad game, the thought that came into my head was, well, it's a, it's still a game, right? But having a good game in like the traditional sense would be, Okay, yeah, you throw a no hitter. That's a good game, but how do you have a good game when you're having a bad game, right? Like it's still a game. So like it, it's weird that at that point your mentality kind of switches to, okay, I'm in it right now. This is painful. This is terrible. And again, our job's a lot less sexy, right? We're we're out there pounding pavement, but oftentimes, like Adam said earlier, like sometimes you start and you're like, I don't have all my best stuff today. Like I, I can feel what that feels like to step into an environment, a performance environment, and be like. I think this is going to be a hard day. For some reason, I'm just not clicking. Distracted or whatever. Yeah, and so then the game switches. I'm not trying to sell every person that I'm talking to. I'm trying to impress myself in staying out here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not playing great, so I got to get whatever win I can get, whether even if that's an appointment, a good conversation, a, a yeah. something. Because, you know, I, I, watch a, I watch a lot of racing. I watch a lot of Formula One racing. I watch a lot of Supercross racing. And they'll often say that you win championships on your bad days because anybody can race good when racing's good. Right. But it's like, Hey, can you get seventh, not 12th? Like, can you, and that really that's how a career is made. We're talking about one bad game and one great career. So it's like, well, a great career has got a lot of bad games in it, but you're not just playing that game. You're, you're playing for, to impress yourself and to, to, how do you, how do you make the most of a game when it's going bad? I guess. And that's, that really hits home to me in direct sales because you can't always control the outcome, right? Maybe you're 
I mean, and you were having, you were raising a family during this time. And I know you were set, like when you were in Kansas city, you know, you had talked to your wife and she was living in Utah, I think at the time. So there's a lot like going on. Right. And so it's like, how do you manage everything and do the best you can with what you have to, to ultimately create a really good career? Does that resonate? Does that make sense? Perfect. I think you put it as well as anyone could have put it. What was your, I was trying. What was your, I was what, struggling out there. What was your sec. best game? What was a game where you were just dealing, where, where you were unhittable? Uh, where Fenway Ortiz Park. is glad he wasn't hitting against you that day because you would have freaking put that guy away. <laughs> he was hitting against me. He was hitting against me that day. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> my, one of my better... <laughs> um, pretty much any game against the White Sox my last four years was one of my best games. Um, I pitched well against <laughs> them. For, for some reason... For some reason, a light switch went on against the White Sox, and they got the better part. They got the better of me a couple of times, but my last four years, I pitched well against them. But I think my my game that stands out to me was a, a game on Mother's Day at Fenway Park, my first start in Boston, and um, I had a three hit shutout going into the ninth inning, and um, you know was was handling them well enough. They even took out Manny Ramirez. They just took him out of the lineup and said, you know, you guys got this game. We'll give it to you. Um, wow. That's, That's probably awesome. the game that I felt like I pitched maybe the best I ever pitched was one of those. That's where, so I live in Boston now. I've lived there for 10 years. So I go to the Sox okay. games all the time. And would you rank Fenway as one of your favorite places to play? Nope. I'd rank it dead last. Fenway is my least favorite park to Because you're a right-handed and pitcher in a, a short left field porch. Is that the deal? The mound is flat, which for a pitcher is not a good thing. Uh, it feels like you're just pitching on a on a street instead of on an elevated mound. Mm-hmm. the The rubber is off centered, which really messes with me because I'm probably I'm OCD with everything. So the fact that the rubber is not perfectly aligned with the plate messes with me. I have to like try to calculate. Well, if I'm if I'm three inches to the right, then I, does that mean my fastball? Like I, I start thinking too much. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, every time they hit it to left field, it's either a home run or a double off the wall. So. I pitched terribly. Adam's going to use first, that with no, his friends. He's going to be like, now watch, you'll notice oh yeah, that the that's rubber doesn't be every perfectly game, align. Every game, that's why he's... <laughs> every game I go to, I'm like, you know, uh, I swear that rubber looks off to me. <laughs> I'm just going to hit up. But um, you know what's funny about baseball is every Major League Baseball diamond is not the exact same. So like a football field is the exact same, right? In any stadium in the in the country college pro high school they're all the exact same basketball court same baseball different field every single soccer's field. like that too yeah. right isn't soccer different yeah soccer so, soccer's different as well they have a minimum and crazy. maximum but but fenway is my least favorite for those three reasons and i pitched terribly my first game was my one of my best of my career the next seven were all seven of the worst of my career so um, what's your favorite it took place? me it took me six years i think or more seven eight years to ever win a game at Fenway after I, cause that game, I pitched one of my best games. We didn't even win the game. We ended up losing. They brought in relief pitches and we gave up six runs in the ninth inning no. and lost. <laughs> so so I, it's uh he doesn't get the win on his record. That's yeah. right. no, he took him get, out in the ninth I, inning. He doesn't get a, he doesn't even get a stat. Uh, I don't, but, but it is my, it is my favorite park to watch a game in that and Wrigley are my two favorite to watch. Uh, I took in a game from the green monster seats on an off day one time and, there's nothing better than, than watching a game at Fenway, but uh, from a pitching you, perspective, it's my least favorite. How'd you like Kansas City? How'd you like living? I mean, I know you were kind of back and forth because your family's elsewhere, but how'd you like yeah, living no, in Kansas fantastic. City? Yeah, no, fantastic. We lived there I for three Kansas years. I love Kansas City. It's yeah, a cool spot. Amazing. 
amazing place. The people are fantastic. Um, no better community than Kansas City. They're, you know, diehard Chiefs fans, diehard Royals fans, just good people. Mm-hmm. So we really enjoyed living there and my kids loved it. Well, in the cities, like they're like, they're like gentrifying all the areas and stuff. Like it's weird when people ask me like where I could live. And I was like, well, you know, I live in Southern California right now. So that works for me. Uh, you know, my wife's from Utah. I'm from Seattle, not moving back to Seattle. But then I'm always like, oh, and I could live in Texas, California, Kansas City. And like Kansas City, I'm like, it's surprisingly awesome there. I love Kansas yeah. City. That had to have been a magical run, that World Series year. I'll bet this whole it was. city was just going crazy. It was It was incredible. To, um, you know, two years previous, we were one of the worst teams in, uh, in the league. And... Uh, all of a sudden, we're in the World Series and just a run that was unexpected. We we made the playoffs and should have lost the wild card game, losing by four in the eighth inning and uh, came back and won that game. And so just to see the way that the city mm-hmm. grabbed onto it. And um, it was just it was like we were winning it for for a couple of million people, not even just for the 25 guys in our clubhouse, but in the coaches, but for for the whole community. And it was I think that maybe the most gratifying part of it was 14 was a surprise to everybody. And I think they placed us to finish third place in the division the next year after we lost the World Series. I think it was third or fourth place in our division. It might have been fourth out of five. And we uh, we came out and won our first eight games of the season in 15 and held first place for the division almost the entire year, if not the whole year. And so it was kind of like, you know what? We we believe in ourselves. The, the players were the same. We only lost a couple guys. And they, they said, you can't do it again. And not only did we do it again, but we did it better by winning the World Series. And that was, you know, that was really gratifying just to to prove to ourselves that we, we could do it. And the mentality changed so much that even without a superstar in our team, we can go to back-to-back World Series. I have one last question um, for me anyway. Uh, baseball, I, I just love all the unwritten rules of baseball. And uh, one of the best – I actually send Ty these highlight videos. I was videos. hoping we were going to talk about So this. I send Ty these highlight videos all the time where the the retribution pitches are shown. You know, where <laughs> it's, it's like a whole other language. It's like, like a whole other culture on the and, baseball and diamond. The casual observer is like, why did he just hit that man? You know, And uh, I'm like, oh, it's because that batter um, flipped his bat when he hit a home run off that same pitcher three years ago. You know, and so this is the first time they've this is the first time they've played each other since then. And so, of course, first pitch is going at his head, you know. So, like, did you you ever have one of those? Are you talking about are you talking about Bryce Harper? (laughs) (laughs) So did you have one of those moments where uh, where you went back at someone and, and it could have even been something that happened between you and that person? Or I actually find the most fascinating ones when uh, you you're sitting in the dugout. And something happens on the field. You're pitching, and you're like, "Oh God!" Now I, you know, you have to go out first pitch and hit the batter. Like, did you ever have one of those moments? I would neither be able to confirm nor deny that <laughs> that, I, oh, that I've ever that, that I've ever had any of those moments. You have to ride for the team. I've learned that from hanging out with Adam. Like, it was funny because he's like, "Well, this guy's teammate spiked this guy, and they think it wasn't an accident." Like. <laughs> two years ago yeah. so watch it's coming at his face and i'm yeah. like it's amazing like, yeah the best is when you can predict them coming you're like oh watch this this one's <laughs> gonna be like i'll tune in just knowing something's gonna happen you know yeah adam Tommy yeah, so you're not so you're not gonna you're uh-huh. not gonna air any of that all right i, th- I think i've forgotten I've, I've just i'm just looking okay. forward <laughs> okay cool that's all we needed to know yeah. hey uh 
Jeremy, thanks so much for spending time with us today, man. This has been such a cool conversation to, to you know, apply your expertise to, to things that I think the guys that are in any professional endeavor or any kind of like self-improvement endeavor, I think, you know, the, the themes of preparedness and confidence and the long game and where that actually comes from. I mean, it's, it's really cool to have, to have seen your journey and to, um, you know, to hear you comment and articulate on it. So, so thank you for, for joining us, man. It's been awesome. My pleasure. I greatly appreciate you guys. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, just DM us on Instagram and one of us will reach out about how to join this dynamic opportunity. You want to come be a part of the best sales team, solar team in the industry? Hit us up. Sunrun. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.